Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. And uh, they can only act within a narrow set of ideas. And that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. It used to be that kids went to the public school they were assigned based on where they live, and the only debate about education was how much more money to give the districts each year. And this has changed a lot. Just two years ago, no state offered scholarships to every school-age student uh, to use as their parents wish. Now there are two, and Arizona's the latest. I want to talk with uh, Matt Beinberg about it. Matt is the Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute, a free market think tank in Arizona. And he's also got an interesting point to make about how the scholarship can transform education. Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first, can you explain the Empowerment Scholarship Accounts? The Empowerment Scholarship Account, or ESA, uh, is the title that we give to it here in Arizona, essentially is an education savings account. And basically what it does, it says if you're a family with a student in K-12, uh, instead of having taxpayers spend what they would have to send your student to a public school, they can take a piece of that. Uh, part of that funding will go into an account that is specifically designated for your child. And then those funds can be used for any educational purpose for that kid. So that could be tutoring, private school tuition, at-home curriculum, textbooks, special education therapies, essentially whatever one of these designated educational uses, now the family controls the actual use of those funds and they can put it toward whichever one of those avenues they think is gonna best serve the needs of that child, rather than saying you have to go through the public school funding formula system. And if you are not, you know, if you don't believe that the available options through the public school system are gonna meet your needs, you're sort of on your own tough luck. So the ESA program says, we're gonna give every kid the option to pursue the best education possible uh, and give that extra flexibility for them. And these have existed in Arizona for a long time, just for only a targeted number of students, right? That's right. So the, the program actually started uh, back in about 2012. So the Goldwater Institute had, had pioneered that, put forth some policy proposals and, and helped get that through uh, the legislature originally here in Arizona. So that was the first in the country. Um, and so originally it was open just to, like you said, certain groups of students. And we've worked over the last several years to uh, improve access to the program. So before this latest uh, expansion took place for every kid to be eligible, only about a quarter of Arizona students were actually eligible to participate. So those were kids with special needs or kids whose families served in the military, uh, kids you know who were coming from the foster care system or lived on Indian reservations. And essentially those kids over the last 10 years have had access to the program and the rest of Arizona students have not. So now this new legislation says, we're not gonna kind of carve out and say, you know, here are the haves and the have nots, or here's the, the people who get this opportunity and others don't. It's saying just like any student can walk into a public school uh, and have that opportunity, we're gonna say that the, the allotment of funding that any kid would have generated, we're gonna make that available for that kid and for that family. Mm -hmm. So did this, um did the state's experience with selective, uh, or sorry, with targeted ESAs help the move to move uh, uh, to to all students? I think it certainly has, and this is something that uh, you know, as we've worked on this issue, um, you know, in Arizona, again, every year we've we've had legislation either to strengthen the program, you know, program improvements, refinements to it, or opportunities to expand access to it. And rather than this just being something where the teachers unions come out and say, this is a terrible idea, this you know, is, is just bad, we actually have real families who are on the program, right, who can talk about their experience and say, 
this is actually serving my child today. Here's how it's helping. You know, and we've written, uh, again, reports on this. We've had, uh, you know, the State Board of Education here in Arizona, which helps sort of oversee the program, has had essentially forums and town halls for ESA parents to, you know, say, here's our experience, here's, uh, you know, challenges that we face, whatever it may be. And you see a litany of these families who have testified to the state board and to state lawmakers saying, this has changed the lives of my children, this has changed the lives of my family. And so instead of this just being, you know, an abstract debate over a different approach for education, we have proof of concept, right, that says, look, these are real families on here. Unless you think that we should block other kids from having similar opportunities, we've already seen that this can work and has made a positive difference. And it sounds like you've been doing that for a long time now, too. Like you argued for the uh, ESAs to start. Uh, you followed people that were trying, uh, that were using them just to see what happened. You developed champions. So what did it take to get the general, the universal uh, uh, scholarships? And, and why did it happen now? Well, it, it really took all hands on deck. It took, you know, we had the support of the governor. Governor Doug Ducey here in Arizona during his State of the State address this spring said, you know, we need to expand school choice, send me the bills, I will sign them. So he was very uh, gung-ho on both uh, ESAs and school choice. And another major issue that, that we've pioneered is the idea of academic transparency to say, let's also make clear what our public school system is teaching so that parents can help navigate that and decide, do they want to pursue school choice? So Governor Ducey had been a very strong champion of both of these policies. And then we had leadership in uh, the legislature. So the uh, House Majority Leader Ben Toma, who sponsored the legislation, you know, brought on the the support of lawmakers to do this. And I think one of the notes that's really worth highlighting, you know, Arizona is is a red state, but we only have a one vote majority of conservatives in both chambers of our legislature. So there's not a single vote to spare, given that left wing lawmakers have essentially aligned themselves with the teachers unions and opposed, you know, virtually any form of of school choice which means that the, the conservative majority had to keep literally every single vote on board to get this passed. And so, you know, with a razor thin uh, margin of error, you can't have really a, a, anybody who defects and says, no, I'm, I'm against this. I'm gonna line up with kind of the union talking points. And so we have seen in, in past years, uh, even some of the lawmakers who had opposed school choice this year came along and said, okay, you know what, we've got a coalition that's being built. And the, again, the leadership, uh, Representative Toma and others who said, we understand there are folks who are more passionate about school choice and others for whom maybe education policy is not their, their strong suit. Um, and we're going to bring everybody together. We're going to make this part of the, the overall plan that the legislature is pushing. And at the same time that they provided this universal expansion of ESAs, they also increased funding for public schools by hundreds of millions of dollars. So they essentially said, even for those who you know, are, are more inclined toward the public school system. Um, this is a win-win for everybody, right? We're gonna give resources to the public schools. We're gonna give opportunity to kids through the ESA program. And so the legislature was able to get that through. Um, you know, we worked with with parents and other advocacy groups here in, in Arizona and having the support from, you know, top to bottom uh, is really what helped get this over the, the finish line. That's really interesting because I think um, one of the things that happens by you know, as, as part of the impetus for these reforms is that a lot of people have been arguing for a while, but you need legislation, and which means you need legislative champions like your governor to, to think, what can I actually accomplish with the legislators that we have? And he felt confident enough to, to, to say, I want this. And he felt confident enough, even with slim legislative majorities, that he would be able to get that. And that was different from where it was, I assume, two or, or four years ago. 
Uh, it's kind of the evidence that that the education environment has changed, even if it's just a little bit, uh, because uh, this happened this year. It didn't happen two years ago. So why do you think this environment has changed so much? I think, you know, there are a couple of, of big reasons, uh, you know, obviously with COVID, right? We saw as families and students were, were really made an afterthought. You know, you had the teachers unions that not only pushed for the, the shutdowns of the schools, but then fiercely resisted reopening. You know, we here in Arizona had the union affiliated groups uh, when, when the schools were trying to reopen, uh, organizing teachers to sign fake obituaries to, to send to the governor to protest the idea that, that schools should reopen, right? We saw this across the country with sort of these, these demonstrations and, and efforts. You know, there's a New York Times headline that basically said the teachers unions were fighting reopening, but also live remote instruction. And, and it was this sort of clear case of kids' needs. And by the way, I wanna put, make, make one point is that the um, teachers' unions argued that school shouldn't be happening, but they also argued that teachers should still be paid. Correct. And and we saw that, you know, with the, the sort of COVID stimulus funds where public education got $200 billion of extra funding. Uh, and, and I, you know, I saw an article recently that now there are folks on the left claiming that even that wasn't enough. You know, we had school administrators here in Arizona, uh, our largest school district in the state, saying it's terrifying how much money we have from the feds just raining down on the school system. And yet we still see the unions with their hands out saying, no, what we actually need is more, even though we're going to you know, use the other hand to basically close the school door. So I think COVID really was an impetus as a lot of families realized, hey, my kid is either having the opportunities close to them or they're being forced to go, you know, well after even the vaccine was available for those who, who wanted it. You know, we were still seeing the schools imposing these draconian COVID mandates, you know, whether masks or mass quarantines, these things that were disruptive to, to students' education that clearly were not driven by science. They were driven by essentially political uh, influence of the unions. And so families in Arizona and elsewhere that were desperate for opportunities, a lot of them flocked to charter schools. We saw charter school growth increase, you know, 10,000 kids as districts shed 50,000 students, right? These families were, were flocking to them, but they had wait lists. And so for all these families who couldn't get into a charter school and were desperate for something else, it's a lot clearer for families to understand maybe it really is helpful to, to have those opportunities. And, and so I think that, that natural interest in, in school choices has really grown. Yeah, the um, overcoming the opposition, I think uh, your lawmakers did something that was pretty clever, which was um, the main opposition to uh, scholarship accounts to, to a lot of school choice initiatives is this is going to take money away from our school districts. You can't do that. You can't. Uh, this is going to defund education. And in this type of environment, it's like, well, we can actually do both. We can give you more money and we can do these other things. Um uh, now, it's not going to stop them from, from looking at every dollar that goes to the scholarship as something that could have been going to public school districts. But I think that plays a lot less uh, or there's there's a lot less interest from the public and, uh, when both uh, both school districts and the scholarship get funded. That's right. It, it really is hard for, for the left to argue that this is destructive. You know, we've we've you know, again, put out data and shown. You know, the public schools are getting $15 billion a year in, in Arizona, and they got, again, almost a billion dollars of new funding, $600 million of ongoing funding. That's more in a one-year permanent increase than the ESAs are projected, you know, for all the kids leaving public schools, that even in total, the, the public school system still ends up with more money. And, you know, it, 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 there's really, you know, sadly, I think, and we saw this during COVID, right, some of the schools that 
that said, look, we're not going to reopen until you put a moratorium on charter schools or you do all these political demands. We saw this during Red for Ed in, in states like West Virginia, where there was an effort to actually increase teacher pay at the same time they were going to authorize uh, access for ESAs, and the unions fought against it. They literally were willing to trade and say, we'd rather not have pay raises for our teachers than also allow school choice. So, you know, again, the, the priorities here are, are completely backwards and, and primarily motivated by power and politics from the left. Whereas the folks pushing for educational freedom say, look, again, as the legislature here in Arizona just showed, you can put resources behind the public school system at the same time that you're allowing students and parents who want to opt for something different to do that. Now, I, I said at the top of the show that the debate we used to have was how much more to give public school districts each year. And it sounds like we're still having that debate. We're just also having this other debate about how to best equip parents with the uh, resources they need to make sure that their child has the best options available. Yeah, and I'm sure we will continue to, to have that debate. And again, the, the points that the, the left doesn't like to usually acknowledge is just how much we are spending, right? It always is just, well, our schools are underfunded. And when you ask people how much they're actually getting, you don't tend to have an awareness either of, of you know what the total spending is or the, the per people spending. You know, in Arizona, it's $13,000 per student per year on average. That is more than the full sticker price of tuition at a four-year university in Arizona for K through 12 students, right? And so I think that it, the more that families and the public becomes aware of just how significant that investment is, then we can you know, have that discussion about, well, if this truly is, is not enough, you know, what does it take? And you don't usually hear an answer to that, right? Because we, we see some of these other states that are spending you know, New York, DC, well over $20,000 per kid a year. Um, and there's, there's no, endpoint uh, ever ever in mind. They, they just sort of move the goalpost and, and change the narrative. And the end result is it's always just give us more money, but don't ask questions, don't ask for reforms, don't ask for improvements in, in academic outcomes for students. So Matt, you are not a legislator, as in you cannot vote to enact these policies yourself. Uh, you are instead an advocate for these ideas. What specifically was your role in helping to get this uh, this uh, universal scholarship uh, approved. Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned, Goldwater had helped pioneer the original ESA program back in 2011-2012. And so we have been, you know, down at the Capitol uh, basically every year since then educating members, testifying on this bill, you know, helping that that language uh, and identify that the areas where again the program can be strengthened and improved. Um, you know, I kind of referenced that we've put out, you know, policy reports in the last couple of years, you know, we put out a report showing, hey, here's the actual fiscal financial impact to the public school system of ESA program and how this actually sends money back to the public schools. Here's a report on how the usage of ESAs is actually playing out, where we're seeing kids in Native American reservations with child poverty rates double the state average with hundreds of kids using this program. Here are districts that are inner city, urban, low income, predominant you know, DNF-rated public school areas with lots of kids accessing this program. Uh, you know, we put out a report this past year that showed, look, you know, we hear from the unions that private education is, is too expensive and something like an ESA is just a, a subsidy for wealthy families to go to expensive private schools. So we did a big survey and actually showed that the, the median private school tuition in Arizona, so the, the tuition rate that, you know, half of schools charge more and half charge less, was about $6,500 for, for elementary school, which is right in line with an ESA award to show that if you're a family and you get an ESA, that can actually fully cover or put you within a stone's throw of fully covering tuition at most private schools in Arizona, right? So again, things like that, to put that information and that data out there for lawmakers to be able to 
to stand on, on solid foundations and say, look, this is good policy, this has data behind it, uh, and that you know this is something that, that is maybe not a political winner to the unions, but it is a political winner for, for parents and a, it's an academic winner for students. Uh, so you're doing research to justify the, uh, the policies that you're recommending and to respond to the objections that people, uh, that people make. Um, like how important is that really in this debate? I mean, you've got these lawmakers who are keeping their eye on public opinion. I assume this can help change public opinion, but that the, the lawmakers are the people you're primarily tar- trying to target. So what does research get you in this debate? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is having those conversations with the lawmakers, right? It's, it's to make sure that that information, that, that they understand just how big of a priority this is. You know, you ask kind of why, why this year as opposed to the past. And I think that the lawmakers recognize and say, look, there is a growing chorus of, of families who want this and to actually understand there is, again, sound policy to, to get this through. So obviously we try to you know, promote, broadly speaking, support for the policy, but then it's having those conversations with, with lawmakers to, to lay this out. Uh, and again, having the, the, the parents who you know, we work with and, and come and testify, you know, there was a big effort from the left to literally block the legislation after it was enacted by the governor and the legislature. They were trying to collect signatures to block it from taking place. And, you know, parents rallied, we uh, worked with them, and, and there was a decline to sign effort to make sure that this didn't, uh, didn't get blocked. And so there's, there's sort of, like I said, kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach of, of trying to get this through. So it does take, you know, the legislative will to, to say this is important and we're going to get this through. It takes having good language that's available to, to say, here, this is, you know, we've, we've put out model policies, you know, we've helped advise on on the crafting of of this sort of legislation that says, here's what needs to actually be done. Here's a way that this can be crafted to be implemented um, that addresses the the questions and concerns about providing school choice for families. Yeah, uh, I think what the what what research kind of uh, did was that it helped shift the Overton window even before um, the political environment had, had changed, so that when politics had said, "Look, we we think this is accomplishable now. We think there's enough support. We've got enough people," you had everything necessary to make sure that it was there through uh, to to get enacted because. Once they start talking about this, if they don't have the support, if they don't have research, legislators get cold feet. And it sounds like you had some that had cold feet going into this process already, um, but that when when it when it came uh, came down to it, uh, all the support was there to, uh, to get this through to the finish line. Yeah, and 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 as I mentioned, you know, there were members who had voted against school choice in the past who voted for it this time around, and it was you know a mix of things of, of seeing, hey, this is a this is something the public and parents are demanding, uh, and this is something that, you know, if they're advocating and saying we want to just pour money into the public schools, that it's a, you know, there, there's an element of well, we're going to take all this into account when we're deciding, you know, what the what's going to be done. So the legislators look at that and say, all right, you're interested in putting more funding into this public school program. I'm interested in giving parents an opportunity. Again, finding a way to to do both, and so that's what we saw happen here in Arizona. And the, the, again, the takeaway is for states that have much larger majorities than a single vote. Uh, you know, we see a lot of these, you know, nominally red states where the legislatures kind of sit on their hands and and, and don't push for it. Um, and I think that Arizona shows that you don't need to have a supermajority to get something like this through, even if you have members who don't, you know, care about school choice or are opposed to it, that there are paths forward to get this through and, and make that opportunity available for parents. How does this change education in Arizona? It you know now says that every kid in the state has a, an equal shot at whatever educational 
opportunity they want to pursue, right? So now every kid is eligible for it. Uh, every student, you, know, you mentioned West Virginia, which, which passed a law that, that said any kid in a public school is free to uh, shift over to an ESA. The Arizona bill actually says, regardless of where you're coming from, if you are in private school, if you are in homeschool, if you are in a public school, it doesn't matter where you're from. We're not going to discriminate, you know, against based on a decision that your your parents or your family has made. Every kid, just like tomorrow, you can walk in the door of a public school and taxpayers will fund your education. If you would like to opt for an ESA and have part of that, you know, funding allotment for you, you can use it. So in Arizona, that now means that. You know, we have a very rigorous charter school sector uh, in Arizona. We've about a 20% of our public school kids uh, go to public charter schools, which are independently operated. Again, a lot of really high-performing schools, but those tend to have uh, wait lists. You know, they're, they're, they've been expanding, they've been replicating, uh, but you see demand for that exceeding supply. And so something like the Universal ESA program says, well, look, we've seen growth in the number of families who are interested in doing homeschooling you know, during the pandemic, right? We heard a lot about learning pods and micro schools, but that's obviously difficult for a family to continue doing that, where if they're paying their property taxes, they're paying uh, to support other kids going to, to public school, but then they have to pay out of pocket, you know, to to hire a tutor or spend the time and 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 you know do that at home without you know foregoing whatever career opportunities they might have had otherwise. The ESA program now provides a mechanism for those families to put those funds toward the education of their kids, either to help support the the costs of you know schooling them at home or to gather together and do one of these you know, learning pod or micro school type of models, or to simply go to a traditional brick and mortar private school if, if that's gonna be what, what best uh, helps the kids. So I think what we'll see is you know, an expansion in the number of, of providers uh, who are able to, to now meet this need. Uh, and I think we'll see families from across the spectrum who are excited to, to use the program now. I assume that a lot of parents uh, did like these learning pods and micro schools, even when they weren't being funded uh, as a way to cope with uh, with the pandemic. Um, like, how big of a market do you think there is going to be for them now that you know you can actually use this uh, possibly even as a profit generating venture? Yeah, I mean, I think we will see uh, you know the the share of, of homeschoolers, right? You know, kind of doubled or tripled depending on the numbers that you're looking at. Uh, you know, five or ten percent of, of of kids around the country. And so there have been models here in Arizona, the, the Prenda Micro Schools, for instance, that over the the course of the pandemic really started to expand, where they have you know essentially guides or, or instructors who are there and available to take a small group of students. And, and help you know educate educate that group. So during the pandemic, again, if you weren't a family that had the means to you know sort of everybody was you know largely stuck at home in a lot of these instances, but for families who didn't have the means to you know continue doing something like that, um, you essentially have only families who can independently pay to provide that education for their kids on top of paying their their taxes to the state. Now this says again, any family is gonna we're gonna break down that economic barrier and say any family can can do this. Uh, the Prenda micro schools, I'm not familiar with them. So it's essentially there's there's kind of similar providers here where it it essentially says, look, if you are a, a student and instead of going to the traditional again brick and mortar uh, you know public school or a large private school, uh, you could get together a group of 10, 15, 20 students and have essentially an instructor who helps with that cohort of kids to educate them, you know, as a, as a kind of more, more along the lines of that single, single room schoolhouse model that, you know, is, is not a large institution, doesn't have layers of bureaucracy and is essentially a, a small sort of entrepreneurial arrangement. And so something like this essentially allows 
parents to seek out if they say, look, my child might thrive on a more you know, smaller scale, more individualized attention, or if an educator says, look, I'm not inclined to go through all the barriers and hurdles of uh, you know, spending years and, and thousands of dollars to go through a, a, a teacher program you know, at a university, if, if it's somebody who is you know, an, an expert in their field or is, is able to you know, apply their knowledge, uh, but otherwise is, is sort of kept from entering that teaching profession, Someone like that may have the opportunity to to step in and and help you know fill that that need of of uh, you know excellent educators. Okay, so you've got like a teacher who's kind of a teacher for hire and can do fifteen to twenty students. Do you think that person's going to get paid as well as they would in a public school district? Then, so you know, if you look at just the, taking kind of the the numbers on this, right? If you have an ESA and it's about seven thousand dollars per student, uh, and so if you had a an instructor with with ten kids, and they were paying. You know, if the family said we would like to put that money toward you as our essentially teacher for our kids, you know, that'd be seventy thousand dollars for uh, an instructor with ten kids. You take that up to fifteen or twenty kids, and and you're talking one hundred, one hundred thirty, forty thousand uh, dollars that would potentially be available for that teacher. And so, obviously, the public schools have a lot more overhead. They have a lot of administration. There's a lot of uh, you know things that are that are there that wouldn't necessarily be in play if you had someone who was looking more entrepreneurially to say, hey, I'm going to you know, hang my own shingle and, and be you know, essentially an independent uh, educator here. All right, as I already dwell on this point, because I think it, it, but I think it's very interesting is that what is the average um, teacher salary in, in Arizona in public school districts right now? It's about $55,000 a year. And so you, you look at that, right? And, and you know, kind of where I think you're going with this, the, mm-hmm. The typical student, on average, you know, is generating well over uh, $10,000, you know, about $13,000 from all sources. And so you look at that and say, well, for a classroom of, of 20 kids, you're talking over $250,000 of funding that's going into that school system per class of 20 kids. And if the teacher is pulling 50 to 60,000, um, and you know, add on another quarter or so for a, a pension or, or what have you, you're obviously talking about a, a, a fairly modest share of that overall funding that's going to the teacher. And so if you did something like the micro school, obviously that means that is potentially purely going to the educator. There is not, uh, you know, besides what are what, what are going to be determined by the educator or the parents, the really important resources that are there, right? The, the actual curriculum resources, um, but you're not gonna have, you know, an assistant superintendent of diversity, equity, and inclusion that's, you know, sucking up taxpayer funds and not enhancing the education of any of the kids. Yeah, I mean the numbers are when you when you look at it in that perspective. I don't know how anyone else can't say or can't just wonder where does all the other money go in these public school districts. But that's an opportunity to do better, and that's a, a good thing to have these scholarships to give other people alternatives to do better. So, okay, you've got more micro schools, you've got more people in charter schools. Um, uh, like. Let's say go out 15 years. What does that like? How many people are going to each, or what does education look like in Arizona now that we're funding students, not systems? Yeah, well, you know, we can see where we've we've come from. You know, charter schools didn't exist 30 years ago, uh, and we have about 20% of our kids that are on that. Uh, and so, you know, we've looked at the last decade for the ESA program, and among the eligible kids. Uh, who took advantage of it. it was about five percent of, of kids, right? So we, it may be that we see five percent of students statewide taking advantage of the ESA, and again, 20, 25 percent using a, a charter model. We could see 
dramatic shifts in the, the, the preferences of parents, right? If something like the, if the public school system stagnates, right? We've seen just this week, you know, new data about ACT scores and, and, and public education scores falling. You know, if parents look at this and say, look, the teachers unions over the next 15 years continue to and further hijack education and, and turn it away from its goal of educating students and turn it into, you know, political activism and uh, social justice as opposed to academic enrichment, then you may see more families move toward these models that say, look, we are looking for something that's going to actually put the needs of our kids first. Yeah. And once once you get that and you get um, more people trying to figure out the best way to make sure that students get the best education, like uh, I think the the world looks so much different and we stop uh, like we again, if uh, as long as these things develop and as long as people are actually getting good uh, options to, uh, uh, for parents, I think there's um, there's the future looks pretty bright. Um, but I'm kind of wondering too, is that Arizona is a big state and it's, growing by leaps and bounds, uh, which means that presumably there are also going to be more school-aged children. I think that's got to change the market for uh, for this as well. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, as, as more students come, you know, again, I think we'll see a lot of families who come here uh, and say, hey, this is, you know, completely different from where, where I'm used to, where I had to buy my way into a wealthier zip code to get into a quality school, and now I can come to Arizona and, and have that flexibility. You know, already, like I mentioned, we had a very strong charter school sector and open enrollment uh, system for the parents who were able to get spots to go to that. But now we have completely broken this designation that says your educational trajectory is determined by your geography and said you have access to the best education that's available. So. I do think that as families move here, as, as uh, we see you know, trends in population, that the families, again, are going to naturally gravitate to opportunities that are going to you know, produce the best opportunity for their kids. Now, I have seen some negative speculation about this as well. Uh, we've kind of focused on the positive, but some of the projections that, that, that uh, from people who are concerned about this that aren't necessarily even the teachers union that just wants to have the, the conventional school district system. Um, but... Uh, but the concern is basically that this is great. Uh, uh, this is going to be, this can help uh, uh, parents when they really care about their students, uh, their students' achievement. But a lot of parents don't. They're going to be stuck in, in, in the worst performing schools uh, um, and, and the discrepancy between haves and haves not, have-nots will, will continue to rise. What do you think of those concerns? Um, I think they're good questions to ask, but the, the data doesn't doesn't bear them out, right? And so if you look at the, the largest private school choice program in the country, it's the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. And folks like the Urban Institute, which are left-leaning think tanks, have gone through and looked at it and said, we find these programs, which predominantly serve low-income families, actually improve long-term academic attainment, right? So these are students who are more likely to go to college and persist through, right? These are long-term improvements that we actually see even when focusing among these disadvantaged or, or lower income populations. And then researchers, places like UC Davis have actually gone in and looked and said, what, what is the impact on, on these kids who remain in the public school system? And it's not that the public school system has crumbled, it's that the public school system, those kids themselves also tend to do better. And it's not that difficult to, to conceive of why, which is if families know they can go somewhere else and the public schools don't have just a captive audience, they have to literally compete with it they're suddenly incentivized to do the best that they can, as opposed to just checking a box and saying, well, you have to come here and pay us 
regardless of how well or poorly we educate your student, suddenly it gets their attention a lot faster and they recognize that families are actually going to judge us based upon the quality of education relative to what else they might, they might access. So you actually do see an improvement across the board. So providing more opportunities means kids do better. You know, it's really nice when academics study important questions like that. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for helping us understand what's within the Overton window. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.